I felt like that, you know, there were some big plays that we gave up on defense that normally we haven't been given up that kept drives alive. Uh, but for the most part, I felt like they played very well other than the fact that we gave up some big plays when we felt like we, we would be able to get, get them off the field and we didn't do that. Yeah, I mean, we're resilient. You know, for us, we, you know, we're kind of, we're starting to find our identity um, as an offense. And, um, you know, I think I just got to, you know, again, whatever play is called, we just got to execute that play. It sounds simple. If it was only that simple on a regular basis, whatever play is called, we just have to execute that play. The problem is you got 11 guys who are trying to keep you from executing the play. Last night, though, Sam Darnold, learning that there is a fundamental difference between playing for the Carolina Panthers and playing for the J-E-T-S. Jets, Jets, Jets. Good morning. It's PFT Live. It's Peter King, Mike Florio for the next two hours. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing good. And I know it's early. Three games for the Panthers. Three wins for the Panthers. Three performances from Sam Darnold that may have caused people to begin to subtly or dramatically change the narrative. But it is fair to wonder whether or not the struggles of Sam Darnold, his first three years in the NFL, were more about the Jets and less about him. And he's already inching toward comeback player of the year territory for me although I can hear Shereen Williams telling me you can't win the award by coming back from stinking but still still I I, I, I'm starting to think maybe the Jets had something to do with the stinking of Sam Darnold Mike you know what last night's game and the first three weeks of this season tell us Beware Absolutely nothing. New York Jets. Beware. Yeah. <laughs> no, beware Zach Wilson. Honestly. Yeah. Because, look, you know, for years, you know, when I have talked to agents before the draft, I would, I, I always say something like, you know, it's a shame your guy who's going to get picked in the top three can't be picked 27th. How do you think Lamar Jackson feels right now? Do you think he wakes up and says, Man, I'm so angry I was picked at the end of the first round. He's in the playoffs every year. <laughs> you know, come on. You know, and that's why to me, you know, the first three weeks of the season, Mike, are not, these are not the Sam Darnold Carolina Panthers. He's played okay to well. Okay. You know what these are? These are the Phil Snow defensive coordinator, uh, you know, and, 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 and a cast of about 10 really good and mostly very young defensive players who are really playing great. Now, they haven't played a great early schedule other than the Saints. But, Mike, in three games, they've allowed 10 points a game and 191 yards a game. I mean, that is the recipe for playing deep into January. Because no one right now is playing truly great defense consistently through the season. You know, what do we talk about all week? You know, can we go five minutes without talking about Justin Fields in Chicago? Can we go five minutes without talking about, geez, what's wrong with Trevor Lawrence? We, I mean, all we talk about in our business is quarterbacks. All right? And, and, and justifiably, Sam Darnold, he's been good in his first three games with the Carolina Panthers. 
but he hasn't been Dan Fouts. He's not been, you know, he's not been transcendent. All I'm saying is that the Carolina Panthers are where they are because of defense, and we need to recognize that. Well, absolutely, but Sam Darnold is changing the narrative and playing a lot better than he has ever played. 304 passing yards last night and a couple of touchdowns, and it's something that you can't pull off on a team that has a bad defense, a team that has a defense that puts you in a hole. You play a different way when you're playing from behind. You're more susceptible to having blitzers flying from every direction, defensive linemen not worried about the running game anymore and just coming after you. And when you have better players around you on both sides of the ball, you become a better player, and that's one thing we lose sight of. There are certain quarterbacks who are good enough to overcome that, most quarterbacks are not good enough to overcome that. And that Carolina defense, while we're on that topic, this is something that Drew Brees mentioned the other night when we were doing a little digital thing after halftime of the Chiefs-Ravens game. They're running a college defense. They're running a defense that offenses aren't accustomed to dealing with. And it almost reminds me of... Peyton Manning struggles with the 3-4 when, like, only the Patriots were running the 3-4 the way the Patriots were running it. Well, then other teams start using it more. What happens? You see it more often. You get more comfortable with it. You understand what it is, and all of a sudden you can deal with the Patriots a little bit better because it's not as foreign to you as it had been. This defense that Phil Snow and company are running in Carolina is unique in that the teams that are playing the Panthers aren't getting ready to face defenses like that on a regular basis. And that has an impact as well. And until others start copying the Panthers and using that defense, not that anyone will, but maybe they should. But once that happens, then offenses become more comfortable with it. They see it more often. They come up with ways to beat it. Mike, I also think that if you watch like last night, what really struck me, okay, the second and third plays of this game, okay, and for uh, for Houston. And, you know, remember that they basically started the game with a little gimmick. Davis Mills, you know, tossed it. I think it was to Brandon Cooks on a jet sweep. And, you know, they made whatever, five or six yards, But then there were two really good defensive plays. One of them, the Brian Burns, uh, he batted the pass away on third down. And anyway, my whole point about what Carolina does right now, Brian Burns, Derrick Brown, Daquan Jones, uh, that front, the Shaq Thompson factor in this game. I mean, as crazy as it sounds right now, In the month of September, as we exit, when we exit the month of September, and again, obviously it's early and maybe you'd say Chandler Jones, but I might say that Shaq Thompson or Brian Burns is so far anyway, in the month of September, you know, is the defensive player of the month, whatever you'd call it, in the league. And the reason that this is happening, you're absolutely right. Phil Snow made these adjustments at the start of the year. And last year, he played his two wide rushers down. And he said, I'm going to play him up this year because I think that gives him a better chance to get off the line of scrimmage and basically do better things more quickly off the line of scrimmage. Last night, that really showed with the pressure 
they were able to put on this kid. And Mike, by the way, I was impressed with Davis Mills last night. I mean, he didn't put up a lot of points, but he hangs in there. He makes plays. And the one thing you noticed last night, he is not afraid. No, he took plenty of hits and he was okay. He was moving around fine at the end of the game, but it's a simple mathematical exercise number of hits as they go up chances of getting injured increase as well and Jeff Driscoll had better be ready to go because it's going to be Davis Mills for the next few weeks while Deshaun Watson is permanently on ice and will never play again for the Texans and while Tyrod Taylor recovers from his hamstring injury back to the Panthers though three and oh for the first time since 2015 that was the year they made it to the Super Bowl and lost to the Denver Broncos Sam Darnold good enough the Panthers' offense, good enough to complement that defense. Let's hear from Matt Rule on the performance of quarterback Sam Darnold last night. If you wake, watch the way we called the game, it means we trust him. You know, even on that last drive, I mean, we're, we're throwing, you know, four verticals with him. And, um, you, know, I, you know, I just think in my mind, I say to myself all the time, like, you know, these are professional football players. They've been doing this their whole lives. You know, they, they let, let them go play. Like, don't try, to, don't try to overmanage the game. Let them go play. Let them make plays. And so sometimes you go for it fourth and half a foot and, you don't get it, they make a play, and sometimes, you know, we go make a play. So, um, uh, but I think one thing about Sam, he has some moxie, man. I mean, he's, I mean, he stayed in the pocket, had that long run called back, but, you know, finding Terrace on the third and 12. I mean, there were some huge conversions by Sam, and again, it's him just playing within the system, but also I think he has a courageousness that, you know, um, he, he's not crossing the line going over the top. He's, he's protecting the football and still pushing the ball down there. And got, you know, look at the play Alex Erickson made. I mean, that, that ball, because it's going to be picked, is it not going to be picked? It makes a great play. So, a lot of production from a lot of different places. Oh man, Sam handled the game tremendously well. Uh, he led well. Uh, he kept poised at the times where he needed. He made big throws. Um, and then, you know, when, when it came down to it, he made plays with his feet. Um, I mean, that's all you can ask from a quarterback uh, is just to go out there and, you know, uh, do what he can uh, and, and, and fight to win. What, what did you learn about him in that second half without McCaffrey out there that you didn't know before? Uh, we got a good one, man. Um, I mean, we got a good one. And he's only going to get better. Uh, so, uh, I mean, like I said, it's, it's, it's always hard playing without one of your best players. But uh, Sam stepped up and did a, did, did a tremendous job tonight. That was Cameron Irving on the back end talking about Sam Darnold. And, Peter, I now know what I will be buying you for Christmas. Do you know what it is? It's a Tommy Bahama shirt. It's that. It is that. Cameron Irving shirt, which is awesome. Could I have that, Mike? Have to promise hey, Mike, honest, you'll wear it. I will, if you buy that for me, I will wear that on uh, Pro Football Talk. I will wear that right. on the Friday after Sold. Christmas. And that Sold. is a promise. That's a promise. <laughs> All right. I, I know where you live. Get ready. The package will be arriving. Um, but again, Darnold, Darnold was uh, good enough. And, and Darnold's going to need to keep being as good as he's been if not better Peter and he did most of it last night without Christian McCaffrey Christian McCaffrey exited with the hamstring strain and with a hamstring strain you don't know early on how long it's going to take that muscle to heal we already know that Tyrod Taylor is going to be out for like a month with his with McCaffrey's who knows we'll find out but that offense without Christian McCaffrey is very different but Sam Darnold still found a way to make it go and it helps when your quarterback's good for a couple of rushing touchdowns and can stick his nose in there and push it through and you know I 
I saw somebody tweet this last night, and I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't know what the hell forward progress has been stopped means anymore. Because we've seen some forward progress get stopped very quickly when guys are trying to pass in recent days. I, I felt like that play was over about seven seconds before Sam Darnold got across the goal line. Hey, Mike, listen, we could have a whole segment on the Russell Wilson play. Because, listen, if a guy is still trying to make a play, which Russell Wilson was, and then he gets tackled in the end zone, I mean, that's a safety, period. It's a safety. And, you know, I know we're <laughs> that was not on the agenda this morning, but I haven't seen you in a few days. Russell Wilson got away with one. They blew it. Fix that call. But two other things about the Carolina offense right now. Number one, you know what was beautiful about the first touchdown run? And I don't know if we can play it again. But what was absolutely beautiful about this run is if you watch the Houston defense on this play, everyone, everyone except for one player, watch this, everyone except for one player goes after Christian McCaffrey. And I love it. Watch this, the end zone. Watch, watch everyone, yep. Christian McCaffrey. <laughs> you know, one guy. And so that is what, hey, look. You're going to miss a lot about Christian McCaffrey, and, and, and I get that. But one of the things that you miss about Christian McCaffrey is that he is a defense suck. He, he gets so much attention from the defense that no one else on that offense, unfortunately, right now is going to get. That's one thing. But the second thing is, I, I look, I had a conversation with Matt Rule Sunday night, okay, after they beat the Saints. And he told me this one thing that really, really stuck with me watching the game last night. He, I, I said, hey, how's Darnold? And he goes, you know what I really like about Sam? He said, watch the end of our game here, you know, the New Orleans game. Watch the end of our game. We were still calling passes late in that game. We weren't just sitting on it and calling run, 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 run because we could. You know, we want to get better on offense. We're calling some passes there. And so I think what that says to me is that Matt Rule is telling Joe Brady, hey, listen, play football. Don't be holding the reins back because we're afraid Sam's going to turn it over. And Mike, right now, 12 quarters, one interception, one lost fumble, although he did fumble last night. One interception, one lost fumble. That's two turnovers in three games. That is a rate that you can live with, especially when Sam Darnold is completing 68%. To me, as much as we started and I said defense, 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 Sam Darnold is playing well. He's not playing in a superior way. He's playing well, and that is what they need right now. That's a great point. You know, in a game that's already decided and you could just milk the clock and get out of there, go ahead and work some of your plays. Go ahead and put some stuff on film that defenses have to pay attention to. Get your offense more yep. comfortable with all these new pieces working together. It's going to serve you well in October, November, December, and into January. Chuba Hubbard had 42 snaps last night in the absence of Christian McCaffrey. 11 carries for 52 yards. Not quite the same defense suck, as you would say, but it gives Hubbard a chance to develop if McCaffrey misses some time. Here's Rule talking about 
the Christian McCaffrey injury and the impact that McCaffrey has on the Carolina offense. Uh, Chris, Christian uh, strained uh, his hamstring. Um, I don't know the, the severity level of it yet, to be quite honest with you. Um, but I knew he, the minute it happened, they said, hey, he's out for the game. So that, that's all I knew. I just saw him in there. You know, he's moving around, but he's, you know, obviously, uh, obviously, uh, I have to wait and see kind of MRI maybe or something to see, you know, see what the severity is. Connected at all to last week's stuff? No, last week was cramps. Yeah, last week was cramps. I don't know what happened today. I just think he pulled it. Christian just can kind of, can kind of do everything. And so, um, you know, I think the biggest thing that he brings is they have to, you know, account for him in every every passing rep. You know, they, they can't just double DJ. They can't just double Robbie. They have to account for him. And uh, I think, you know, Sam has done a great job finding other guys. You know, a lot of off-schedule plays that they happen going to Dan Arnold, going, you know, hit Tommy Tremble down the right sideline. So um, I thought Sam played in true progression today. But, um, yeah, Christian's, Christian's amazing at his ability to win one-on-one. So, you know, people have to zone everything off, and that creates a lot of windows for other people. It's easy to forget that, unless you had him on your fantasy team last year, McCaffrey only played in three games in 2020, and the Panthers were still respectable. They can, I think, continue to move the ball effectively without McCaffrey now. Chuba Hubbard was good enough, and... Uh, whether McCaffrey misses no time, they've got the Cowboys coming up next weekend, whether he misses uh, multiple games to get back to the defense, it helps when your defense is as good as it is. And there's the hamstring pull for Christian McCaffrey, and we'll see how much time he misses. And yes, it would be great to have him, but I don't think that you press the panic button in Carolina because they've got so many great players and they're getting it done a lot of different ways, Peter. Yeah, and right now is the time when every football team during the course of a season has moments. Carolinas is coming early. Uh, You know, and there's a lot of teams. The Ravens, their moments really came in late August and September, early September. Um, They have moments where really, really bad things happen. And then you figure out whether your team is good enough. And just like Baltimore on Sunday night, their team was good enough to sort of make up for all the players they've lost. Uh, you know, they've lost 58 running backs, and then all of a sudden, hey, Ronnie Stanley's not playing. I mean, so, and you have to figure out a way. And just like Baltimore scores 36 points and wins late, you know, the Carolina Panthers now are going to have to find a way to go to Dallas. And the reason that I kind of like this matchup, Mike, is that. You know, Carolina right now in holding teams to 10 points a game. I mean, I doubt the Cowboys are going to put up a 30-burger on them. So when you look at that game, you say, can their offense, you know, basically find a way to score 25, 28, maybe 30 points to be able to go to Dallas and beat a team with a powerful offense, knowing that, you know, there's two things going in in Carolina's favor now, Mike. They're going to be well-rested, they're, and they're not hurt on defense right now. They're very healthy, and they are going to go there as the best defense in the NFL. Uh, and again, it's 10 days away. But they're going to go there as the best defense in the NFL to try to beat a very, very good offense. That's one of the games the next weekend. They do have one significant injury on defense. Cornerback J.C. Horn has broken bones that's right bones multiple bones couple of bones in his foot and uh he exited who knows when he will be back you make a great point though about 
the clusters of injuries that will happen in a 17 game season, you just have to expect it when you least expect it, expect it. And the question is, do you have the depth? Do you have the coaching? Do you have the resilience and will to get through those moments when you lose key players for a short period of time or for the balance of the season? What does the next man up bring to the table? How much cap space did we have to make sure that we put in position behind key starters, competent, veteran, experienced players, or are we rolling the dice with a guy that was undrafted, that we tried to develop on, ex- on an accelerated basis, and can we pull it off? Is he good enough? Are we good enough? These are the things that most teams are going to have to deal with. Now, there will probably be, when we look back at the end of the season, and I think it'll be an interesting study, did anyone avoid that inevitable moment where hope this guy's hurt this guy's hurt what are we going to do if you can avoid it you're going to be far more likely to be successful but you know Peter some teams just aren't going to be able to do it they're so top heavy with their cap numbers with their star players that if you lose one or two of those star players you just don't have the guys you don't have the coaching you don't have the ability to continue to play at the level that you need to and it's a testament to John Harbaugh that I'm sure he does a great job of coaching up the guys who come in and speaking to them the right way and inspiring them to do everything they have to do. But 17-game season, we have to just accept the fact that there will be these pockets for a lot of competitive teams that may bring them down or may bring them together. Well, Mike, you know the story, and it, you know, segueing to the Ravens just for a second, you know the story of Justin Houston and how he signed with the Ravens. You know, the agent for Justin Houston called Eric DaCosta, the GM of the, of the Ravens, twice. And DaCosta just said, I can't, we can't afford Justin Houston. We cannot, we don't have any cap room at all. We, we, we can't, we just can't do it. And finally, the agent said, look, you know, Justin Houston wants to play with Marcus Peters. That's one of his best friends, one of his favorite guys he's ever played with. Justin Houston wants to play on the Ravens. So just make any offer. And DaCosta said, he basically said to the agent, I'm almost embarrassed because people are going to talk about Justin Houston for the Hall of Fame one day, and I'm going to make him this offer. And he offered him basically $2 million bucks. That's it for, for the year. And I know in a certain segment of society, you say, well, I'll take a bad offer of $2 million bucks for the year. <laughs> but Justin Houston whatever is used to making eight, 10, 12 million a year. And he's still effective. And Houston wanted to play for the Ravens so bad that he took it. And they basically rejiggered a couple of contracts and found $2 million under the couch cushions. So all I'm saying is that, you know, there are some times when events like that happen for different reasons. And some franchises are dealing with a different set of fairness and unfairness issues because, you know, Justin Houston is not saying that about the Bengals. You know, he's not, he's not begging the Bengals to come and play for him. So that is sort of one of the built-in advantages to one of the good teams. And then Marcus Peters tears an ACL in August and he's gone for the year and he doesn't get to play with Justin Houston. But regardless, it's an excellent point on certain teams can attract those veteran backups and guys who can fit into a rotation on a defensive line like a Justin Houston 
at a cheaper price because guys get to a certain point in their career when they I want to go there, not I want top dollar. Right. And that does help some teams weather the storms that are inevitable. And that extra game on the way to 18, I think over under for me is 2029, 2028-ish to go to 20 games. But I think that we're going to get there inevitably, and that's going to change the dynamic as well and make it more likely that teams are going to go through these periods with injuries. The Texans have gone through a lot at quarterback. They're going through their injury period at quarterback. Tyrod Taylor has been very good. He's out reportedly four weeks with that hamstring injury. Davis Mills getting an NFL start before Justin Fields, before Trey Lance. Third-round pick Mills last night. Here's David Culley, the coach of the Texans, on the performance of his rookie quarterback. I thought he did very well. He did not turn the ball over at all, uh, which was a big thing going into the game. Uh, I thought he threw the ball very well. I thought when we, right, when we went in our two-minute offense right before half, he did, did an excellent job of taking us down the field and uh, making some nice throws and nice plays. And uh, uh, I thought he did a nice job for us. 19 for 28, 168 yards and one touchdown. Passer rating of 95.5. That used to be an extremely impressive number. Now it's just kind of eh. His favorite target, without question, Brandon Cooks. Nine catches for 112 yards. And it's funny, Peter, because I I tweeted, and I knew when I tweeted it that I was setting myself up for this. I said, this just feels like one of those games they could play 120 minutes and the Texans aren't going to score more than three points and they go right down the field and they get their touchdown miss the extra point make it seven six and, and, and it's you know it they made it interesting the, the, it's it was respectable it was just a slow suffocation in the second half but if you're looking for hope and you're in a division where hey you're, you're I mean nobody's out of it at one and two and in the AFC South I don't think you're going to be out of it if you're one and five but you're just looking for something if you're a Texans fan to cling to. And maybe they can get lucky and steal a win or two while they wait for Tyrod Taylor to come back. And when Taylor comes back healthy, and if he can stay healthy, it's a big if, frankly. But if he can stay healthy, they, they can be competitive. Mike, if I'm a Texans fan, honestly, I, I, I'll tell you this. I'm pretty happy this morning. You know why? Because now I know that for the rest of this year, Let's just say, and, and we'll project, okay? Let's just say Tyrod Taylor gets 10 starts and Davis Mills gets seven, okay? At the end of this year, you're going to understand who is the best guy of those two. I think it'll be pretty clear. You'll know who the best guy of those two at the end of the year is. And then, and then you will say, okay, we are going to have our own very high draft choice, and most likely, most likely, we're going to have a couple more high draft choices from trading Deshaun Watson, most likely in March. So if you're Houston, the thing that you're, you're happiest about right now, whether you're Nick Casario, David Culley, Cal McNair, you know what you're happy about? This team doesn't stink. It's, it's not a good team. But they play hard. They play for this coach. And, and look, in, it, Mike, in August, I said, the Houston Texans are an expansion team. 
You know, they're going they're going to win one or two or three games. And you know what? They might. The thing though that I really like about them watching them, they are competitive and they fight and they play hard. And if you're David Cully, that's all you want in your team. You can't control. It's like Drew Brees always had this statement when he would talk to young quarterbacks. Don't look at the scoreboard. Don't think about the scoreboard. Control this play. Control your effort. Control all the things you can control. And don't be looking up at the scoreboard and saying, oh, we're down by seven. It's over. It's late or whatever. You know, and so that is what I see in the Houston Texans. They are playing every play uh, really, really hard. And so I'm a Texans fan. I'm happy today. Nick Casera has done a great job of bringing in veteran players who have fit together quickly. It's a testament to David Culley. A lot of people were surprised that he got the job. He wasn't a candidate for any of the other vacancies this year, last year, any year. But it's it's working relative to what we thought it was going to be. Now, I'm going to do the schedule peak ahead just a few weeks just to get an idea of what one and two and is it's going ugly. to become. <laughs> it's very ugly. It's very, very ugly. They got butchered, Peter. It's at the Bills. It's the Patriots. At the Colts, which all of a sudden seems like a rest stop, given the where the Colts are right now. Of course, it's a rest stop for them, too, because they've got five crippling games before they get the Texans. Then it's at the Cardinals, the Rams, at the Dolphins, and then a bye in Week 10. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a struggle week in and week out for the Texans, but at least they got their win over the Jaguars, and we'll see where else they can find other wins as they try to get to where they want to be. And when a they get Tyrod that Taylor plays back, they that will hard, be Mike. more competitive. They'll get their wins. Mike, a team that plays that hard, a team that plays that hard is going to find three or four wins. I'm just telling you, unless they give up, and I, I, you know, who knows. But, you know, you, you talk about how great the schedule is. Look at the second half. They got the Jets and the Jags. So who knows? I'm not saying they're going to be good because I don't believe they're going to be good, but they're not going to win one game either. Yep. No, I I agree with you. There will be more victories and, uh, and there's reason for hope. And you mentioned the Deshaun Watson situation. Let me just say a couple of things about that. And I want to bounce something off of you that I mentioned to Sims yesterday. Number one, I still would be very upset if I was a Texans fan, just because of where we currently are. Regardless of how we got here, a lot of different events have come together to get us to this point, both as it relates to Watson becoming alienated with the team. That never should have happened. Whatever was said or done to make Watson not want to play for the Texans, that was the first thing. Then the off-field issues for which Watson bears some degree of responsibility, civil and or criminal and or at a minimum moral and or just stupidity. That has created a situation that makes it untenable for him to play. And they won't trade him for anything less than what it is they want. So he's there and they're paying him. And he's a constant reminder of what you could have. And yes, it would have been a different game last night if Deshaun Watson is playing quarterback instead of Davis Mills. All of these things would come together if I was a Texans fan and just torment me. And the fact that he's still on the roster makes it worse. So... I'm balancing whatever optimism I try to find in the current circumstances against the fact that how in the world did we get to this point in a year 
where all of these things have come together and put us in a spot where we've got a franchise quarterback to whom we're paying a franchise quarterback salary and we can't use him. Well, I, I'm reminded of, you know, a statement that I'm sure I've made on this show 68 times. But Bill Parcells used to always say this. He, I mean, I mean, he drove me crazy. He said it. I covered him for four years. Once a week, he would say, well, he'd say, well, they don't sell insurance for that kind of stuff. In other words, <laughs> his whole point was something weird would come up in football. Yeah. And, and look, Cal McNair bears responsibility for what he said to Deshaun Watson and then how he acted in after what he said to Deshaun Watson about the future, about the hire, about the fire, all that stuff, okay? However, however, none of this would have happened if Deshaun Watson, quite honestly, had behaved. So, okay, it, allegedly, if he had behaved, okay? Well, I think but it's fair to say... I, no, I think it's fair to say he created these situations we've, yes. we've heard yeah. enough from his lawyer to say this guy did some things that he shouldn't have done his lawyers already admitted that some of these massage therapy sessions turned into consensual activities sexual activities so it's on his radar screen for for these right. these interactions and it meshes with the allegations that some of the people are making because you know, 22 of them allegedly weren't interested and he didn't stop so yeah he his behavior is a big part of this and it, it's 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 just another factor that is that just these weird the way the dominoes have fallen it's just a strange unprecedented situation and here we are he's still on the payroll he's still on the team and by the way he's not playing and by the way and by the way are we sure that it's going to stop at 22 are we sure there aren't more? I, and again, I, I don't say that with knowledge. I just say that, that there's a reason why this is such a morass, okay? And right. that is because there's so much now that we don't know and so much that has not yet been established factually. And so that's why, to me, when Nick Casario basically leaks it out, hey, we're open for business with Deshaun Watson, if you're Howie Roseman in Philadelphia, you're Chris Greer in Miami, you're Scott Fitterer in Carolina, uh, you're any number of, a te of teams, of general managers that are interested in Deshaun Watson, and all of those teams are, if you're one of those teams, how can you give your best possible offer? And so that's why we are where we are right now, Mike. That's why the headache known as Deshaun Watson, you know, in some ways, in some ways, He's one of the luckiest men in the world right now because he's getting $10 million when arguably if you were, I mean, how many employers in America right now would pay an employee who wasn't working, who had this incredible legal sort of Damocles over his head and every week he's getting, what is it, Mike, 137th of $10 million? Is that they're paid in 37 increments now? 37 week yeah, increments. I think that's you're right. right. You're right. It used you're to right. be it used to be 17 weekly increments, but now they have made it so that it, it very good for the players, by the way. 
that they pay them, uh, you know, in, in like over a nine month period instead of over like a four month period. But be that as it may, I, I think he's pretty fortunate that he's, you know, his body is, is, you know, he's able to work out. He's able to do whatever he does. And, and he's getting paid $10 million to sit on the sidelines and watch football. And the Texans are willing to do it because they view that money as the investment toward whatever they're inevitably going to get for Deshaun Watson. That right. They're going to hold firm with their cost. demands. Right. And, and in their mind, and look, teams have done their investigation. And I think that there's a level of confidence that at the end of the day, this guy's not going to prison. Now, he, he may end up pleading guilty to misdemeanor charges. He may end up writing some significant checks. And if that is what gives the individuals whose rights were diminished in some way, who were harmed in some way, if that gives them their form of justice, so be it. That happens all the time. But uh, there's there's a belief that the worst case scenario is extremely unlikely, and that's one of the reasons why the Texans are holding firm. They're not going to reduce their price because they believe the worst case scenario is extremely unlikely. But until it's done, you never know what's going to happen. Because, yes, you could have an indictment. Yes, you could have a prosecution. Yes, you could have a trial that becomes a comedy of errors for the defense. And the next thing you know, he is convicted. That could happen. My understanding, Peter, and this is the last point I want to make, because we're talking Texans. And I don't know how much we're going to be talking Texans as a football team over the balance of the year. We're not going to have them in prime time again, I don't think. And I hope not, frankly, But unless Tyrod Taylor's back. <laughs> um, but I, I made the argument yesterday. That the Dolphins, who clearly want him, Stephen Ross wants Deshaun Watson. And the, the Dolphins yeah. are hesitating, not because of the possibility that the moment they trade for him, the league says, oh, wait, we've yet to decide whether or not he's going to be put on paid leave because we haven't had to. The Texans have, have done that for us. We're going to put him on paid leave. They're not worried about that. They're worried about the price. And I think from Stephen Ross's perspective – because he comes to it with a different mindset, different background than the people who are caught up in the nuts and bolts of the value of picks and what this pick's worth and what this pick's worth. And here's the chart. Look, all you got to do is look at last year. Three first-round picks. Tua Tagovailoa, Austin Jackson, Noah Igbenogany. Would you give those three guys right now to the Texans for Deshaun Watson? Hell yes, you would. And then some. And that's where I think it takes someone like a Stephen Ross who can speak to Chris Greer and say, you got to quit acting like these unused draft picks are Hall of Famers. Because they're not, in our experience, they're not Hall of Famers. So if the Texans want this, 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 and this, if they want a bunch of unscratched off lottery tickets because we know what happens when we scratch them off, give them to them. And then we get a guy who is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And I just can't help but wonder whether or not the Tua Tagovailoa rib injury is the impetus, Chris or Peter. I'm so used to saying Chris. Now I can throw in Mike Golick as well. Peter is the impetus for Stephen Ross to just tell Chris Greer, go get it done. Look, Mike, it's, it's very clear. This began back when Stephen Ross basically bought this franchise, you know, a decade ago or however long ago it was. Uh, he made it very clear internally, and people who have worked for Stephen Ross 
have, you know, have basically, uh, you know, known the whole time that they were there, I want my Merino. And those are not exact quotes at all. That's not a quote. But it was clear that Stephen Ross didn't care how you got it, how, how many players you had to trade. The only thing, he was consumed with it. I want a franchise quarterback. And okay, so now, and again, it's, it's early, but it's getting late early also. It appears that they made a colossal error when they picked Tua Tonga-Valoa over Justin Herbert, right? So now, even though I believe that Chris Greer and Brian Flores have done an excellent job in building this roster so far, they've got one Achilles heel, that they've built this roster and they've had a lot of high draft choices, and they honestly have no idea that if, whether they have their quarterback of the future on the roster. And if they need to go get him, they are going to have to now spend almost all of the draft picks that they have accumulated and maybe one or two more into the future of their own to go get that quarterback. And Mike, you said one other thing about Deshaun Watson. I have talked to one person who's interested in Deshaun Watson uh, in the NFL. This was a couple of months ago and who basically put it this way. Look, this... If this stuff is true, this is Deshaun Watson's moment of truth. And he has to understand, he's smart enough to understand that I can't do this anymore. And he goes, the, everybody who knows this person thinks that Deshaun Watson is smart and he is not going, if he understands this has to stop now lying in the sand, that he's going to be able to do it. And that's why I think people are going to be willing to trade for a guy who's going to have to do a lot of public penance. You know, the only person in the last, say, 15 years, Mike, who has been similar, 15, 20 years, I think, who's been similar to this has been Michael Vick. Because when the Philadelphia Eagles signed Michael Vick after he got out of Leavenworth, they got killed in many segments of their fan base. There are fans in Philadelphia who are still angry that Andy Reid uh, and Jeffrey Lurie went out on a limb for Michael Vick, even though Michael Vick was close to a perfect citizen the whole time he was in Philadelphia. I think this is going to be basically the same thing, other than the fact that Deshaun Watson's not going to be free. <laughs> Deshaun Watson is going to cost a lot. Yeah, and uh, look, Ross wanted Joe Burrow last year before the draft. He wanted him badly. The Bengals would not give them the time of day. I'd still love to know what the Dolphins put on the table that the Bengals said no to. And then Ross pivoted to Tua. Ross wanted Tua as the fallback to Burrow, and now and he got what he wanted. Now he wants Deshaun Watts, and the question is, at what point does he say just give them what they want. Because there's a chance come March, if you're competing with other teams to get Deshaun Watson, and there will be other teams that have said, hey, we're done with our guy. Let's get in this Deshaun Watson conversation. It could cost more. 
come March than you could get him for as the trade deadline approaches. All right, our deadline has approached and passed for this opening segment. We're going to take a break. When we return, why did Lamar Jackson miss practice yesterday? It wasn't the reason that we all assumed. We'll discuss that next here on Pro Football Talk Live. Jackson will now take it from the gun, from the pistol. Keeping himself untouched into the end zone. Welcome to the greatest show on earth with the greatest athletes on earth. I don't know, I'm kind of sore. I didn't want to tell Coach because Coach probably would have said something to me about flipping next time. I don't know, I'll probably do it again, dude. It was pretty cool. That's Lamar Jackson. He was talking about his hip. He banged his hip on the ground after he flipped into the end zone. Wasn't it practice on Thursday? And it caused many to think, well, maybe that hip really was sore and had gotten more sore and was becoming a problem. As it turns out, Lamar Jackson missed practice yesterday due to some sort of an illness, as our friend Mike Garofolo of NFL Media observed on Twitter. Okay, this time it was what you thought it was last time. A reference to Lamar Jackson's notorious mid-game sprint to the bathroom when we thought it was something other than cramps. So (laughs) yesterday it was finally what we thought it was last season. And it looks like Lamar Jackson will be good to go for the next game, which is a trip to Detroit to take on the Lions. He's expected to play. uh, With or without Lamar Jackson, I think the Lions are going to have a hard time with the Ravens. Peter make any argument for me based on what you've seen from the Lions so far that would cause us to believe that if, as expected, Lamar Jackson plays, the Lions would have a chance to beat Baltimore. You know, I can't see it, Mike. And, you know, to me, the worrisome thing is that along the way, as uh, Dan Campbell is trying to build this team, And as he has his community behind him, you know, the worrisome thing to me is, you know, what happens when you have casualties? When you have casualties who are kind of team leaders, when some people, Jamie Collins in this case, have clearly said, I'm done. I, I, I I can't do this anymore. And we don't know the full story about it, Mike, but it seems pretty clear that Jamie Collins wants out or he's not going to play for the Lions. So to me, I kind of look at this right now and it's a fine balance. It's a little bit of a high wire act that Dan Campbell is walking right now, along with a defensive coordinator, uh, Aaron Glenn, that everybody, everything that I've heard out of Detroit is that the players love Aaron Glenn. You know, so is he going to be able to build a team, to build a defense, to try to resuscitate the career of Jared Goff. Uh, Is he going to be able to do all that and keep his team together in time for them? Because it's going to take a couple of years to turn this, this Titanic around. You know, you just can't turn it around like a speedboat. And so are you going to be able to do that? And right now, his team, his message to his team cannot just be uh, we have to do everything humanly possible to try to win this game. He's got to try to build this continuum, Mike, 
and he's got to try to make sure that he has players on board with doing it. By the way, Jared Goff still looking for his first career win with a head coach other than Sean McVay. He is 0-9 after starting this season, 0-2 under Dan Campbell. Um, uh, the, the Ravens, and this is the bad news for the Lions this week, and this is something Sims and I talked about yesterday. In 2019, the signature moment for the Ravens, who became the Ravens, was the go-for-it on fourth down against Seattle that propelled that victory. Before that, the Ravens, they'd lost a couple games in a row. They beat the Steelers in overtime. They beat the Bengals by six. They weren't a juggernaut. After that game, 37-20 over the Patriots, 49-13 over the Bengals, 41-7 over the Texans, 45-6 over the Rams, who had just been to the Super Bowl. That moment, that kick, from and and the the, the post game speech in the locker room from John Harbaugh was just unbelievable stuff. The Ravens have shown us they can take a moment like that and just put the thing into overdrive. And that's what I'm concerned about, Peter, on Sunday for the Lions. They're going to be the first victim of this 2021 version of the Ravens having their arrival and then kicking the crap out of everybody that gets in their way. Yeah, I think the one difference this year, Mike, is that I don't think that they have the sort of dominating defense that, and look, they, this defense can beat down the Detroit Lions, but I don't think they're going to be, be able to stop everything in their wake. Uh, I think that's one thing. And then the second thing is, listen, you know, you don't want to keep talking about injuries. But is this Ronnie Stanley injury going to be uh, something that plagues him through the course of the season? And and again, you're not going to play 15 more games without getting more injuries. So it, how many guys are you going to, are you going to be able to lose? Look, there is no team, and I told the story in my column on Monday about Eric DaCosta drafting Odafe uh, Owe and how... A lot of people in the league really didn't want Oway because, I mean, the guy's a pass rusher. In his last year at Penn State, he had zero sacks. Who, who, who takes a guy in the first round, no matter how good you think he is, who's a pass rusher with zero sacks on his resume? But DaCosta loved him. He had faith in him. And that faith uh, was borne out when he batted the ball away from Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. So I really, really like the depth that that personnel staff has built up on the Ravens. You just wonder, the depth is one thing. Cutting down below the quick of your fingernail, that is yet another thing. And the ever-present possibility, and I don't want to be accused of jinxing anyone, but if you're a Ravens fan, you have to be worried about Lamar Jackson. He seems indestructible. Cam Newton seemed indestructible, too, until we learned that he's not indestructible. And there's only so many of those hits, and we see it every week. He gets pretzeled around, and he always pops up. But it's just a matter of time if they don't come up with a way to get him to develop. And they're trying to do it. Moore's a passer. Greg Roman's got that obligation this year. But when it's crunch time, like the kid playing Madden, you default to those two or three plays that work. And for the Ravens, it's Lamar Jackson with the ball in his hands making magic happen. Carson Wentz not making much magic happen for the Colts. He has 
not just one but two sprained ankles didn't practice again on Thursday the Colts reportedly are prepared to go not just with Jacob Eason but also Brett Hundley if Wentz can't play on Sunday at Nashville against the Titans we we knew that the first five games were going to be difficult for the Colts but we thought, hey, maybe Carson Wentz is going to have some sort of a rebirth and it's all going to work and they've got the great offensive line, they've got the great defense. So far, it's all falling apart for the Colts. With or without Wentz, they got their work cut out for them at Tennessee. Without Wentz, Peter, I look, and I got a ton of respect for how Chris Ballard's built that roster, but their plan B and C at quarterback has just not worked out for them and it's going to blow up in their faces potentially on Sunday. Look, here's the thing about Carson Wentz that – I, it's too early now to draw definitive conclusions, Mike, but it, it's the classic old football cliche. The most important element of ability is availability. And whatever you say, you can say it's just like the Jimmy Garoppolo thing. Oh my God, freak injuries. People fell on his leg. Well, okay, but, but he's injured you know so you can't count on them that's all there is to it it's fluky maybe yeah that's fine but you know and with Carson Wentz just look at the Carson Wentz situation in Philadelphia and in Indianapolis Mike this is three of the past five years that and and look last year it was it's for the last five years if you count performance But three of the last five years, injuries have taken him off the field, perhaps if this year is is also significant, for significant periods of time. So how do you build your team around that? How do you do that? And if you're the Indianapolis Colts right now, you've got to have the stiff upper lip. You've got to say all the right things. You've got to say, he's our guy, he's our guy, he's our guy, because you don't have any other choice. But at this point, look... Mike, do you remember a couple of weeks ago when this when this drum started beating for, hey, look, you know, Garoppolo, he's just okay. If you can get a low one, a high two for him from some team before the trading deadline, you've got to do it. No, no, no. Don't do that. Now that you have committed to paying him his $25 million for the year, you need insurance. Three of the four years that Shanahan and Lynch have run this team, have been ruined because of either quarterback performance or quarterback injury. Have two quarterbacks there who are competent and can walk and chew gum at the same time. Don't trade the other guy who can play. You know, it's like, how did the Eagles win a Super Bowl? They're backup quarterback. So so you need to have depth at that position. And that's why, to me, one of the things, if my number one priority... In the offseason of 2022, if I'm Chris Ballard, I am going to find my Nick Foles. I am going to get not a good, but one of the top three or four backup quarterbacks in football. And I'm going to tell Carson Wentz, who chafed at Jalen Hurts coming into Philadelphia, hey, listen, buddy, you know, you're not the franchise. The franchise is the franchise. And we are going to get a backup to you who can win if you don't play. So that, I don't even know where I'm going with this. But I'm just saying that to me, that's the one moral of the story with Carson Wentz right now.
Get yourself a backup quarterback who you know you can win with. That's why the Eagles drafted Jalen Hurts, because they recognize backup yes. quarterback is one of the top 15 most important positions on the entire roster. Because Ten. you Ten. have to have somebody ready to go. It can fall apart all together. The season is done if you have your starter injured and if you don't have a competent backup. And back to Carson Wentz and this question, is he injury prone? We hear that from time to time. Is a guy injury prone? Is he just made differently that he's more susceptible to getting injured? I look at it this way. It's not a question of whether or not you're injury prone. It's a question of whether you're prone to putting yourself in a position where you're likely to get injured. I've said that all week. You see how Aaron Donald drags him down from behind? Tom Brady's never getting dragged down from behind by Aaron Donald. I guarantee you, when the Buccaneers play the Rams on Sunday, you will not see Aaron Donald tackling Tom Brady the way that Aaron Donald tackled Carson Wentz. Because Brady is going to say, oh, bleep, that's Aaron Donald. I'm hitting the deck or I'm getting rid of the football. I'm not going to try to prove that I can win a one-on-one battle with Aaron Donald and get my ankle sprained in the process. And that's been the Carson Wentz problem. And it's easy to talk about it. It's so hard to turn it off because it's just the way the guy's wired. And I admire the toughness. I admire the grit. But there's a fine line between toughness and recklessness. And Wentz has been reckless with his body, just like Garoppolo. Garoppolo lost for the year in 2018 because he sees a guy at the sideline. He wants to be a tough guy and drop a shoulder into him. Oh, look, he tore his ACL. You got to know how to avoid putting yourself in a situation where you are prone to getting injured. That's the key. The best quarterbacks understand it, Peter. And then you have Jimmy Garoppolo and Carson Wentz who have yet to figure it out completely. And the last thing I'd say about this, Mike, is that if you understand your role on the football team, you know when to say when. Tom Brady knows his role on the football team. He just does. He understands that it all is going to collapse like a house of cards if for some reason I am not the quarterback of this team. He'll never say it, but he knows it. So Antonio Brown goes out on the COVID list, eh, we'll get by. And of course they will. It'll be a blip on the radar, even though he's a good player. The point is, you don't get by without your quarterback. And that is where, in my opinion, and again, Carson Wentz is a very good football player, but you cannot play like that if you know your role and your place on the Indianapolis Colts. And Tom Brady is so committed to ensuring that he can continue to play football for the Buccaneers that when in doubt, the, the break glass in event of emergency option for him is just fire the ball up in the air, even if it means it gets intercepted. I'm getting rid of this football before I take that hit that potentially is going to knock me out for multiple weeks and impair our bigger objective of trying to get to the Super Bowl and winning it. Let's take a break. We're going to rip through some of the matchups to come on the third Sunday of the 2021 season when PFT Live continues right after this. How do you feel like you're good to go Sunday? Uh, we'll see. Taking it day at a time. Uh, I've worked extremely hard um, to not only get back but improve and try and be better than I ever have been. So 
I'm definitely looking forward to it. It's been a long time. It's been a long time in that cave. Uh, putting yourself back together. I had a great team around me for the entire process. A great support system. Um, and it's going to be special. Like I say, it's been a long time. Odo Beckham Jr., we last saw him week seven of the 2020 season, tore an ACL while making a tackle after an interception. Week one, he was kind of like a game day, not necessarily game time, but a game day call. Then week two, he was scratched as of Wednesday. Week three, things seem to be pointing in the direction of Odo Beckham Jr. playing when the Bears come to town. They need him, Peter, because Jarvis Landry is on injured reserve with an MCL injury. Two different styles of receivers, but still... One of your most important weapons is out. You need another weapon on the field for Baker Mayfield. And I don't know what to expect from the Browns offense with Beckham back in the mix. The one thing I hope for is that they finally get away from this kind of Randy ratio mindset where we got to get the ball to Odell Beckham Jr. We got to find a way to force it to him. We got, hey, if you want to hand it off to him, you want to do a jet sweep, put him in the backfield, do a bubble screen, that's fine. But they, they need to once and for all, and I think they are. I think they are. In 2019, it was a problem. Last year, I think they began the process of getting away from this obsession with forcing the ball to Odo Beckham Jr. down the field, regardless of whether he's covered or not. That was only leading to bad places for the Browns, Peter, and hopefully they won't do that when he returns, if it's Sunday or if it's later in the season. I kind of hope Kevin Stefanski uh, read the numbers game section of my column on Monday. And... uh, this is not a humble brag. It's a brag. <laughs> on, on Monday in my column, I had the stats of Odell Beckham uh, playing and not playing and what happens when he plays for the Browns and what happens when he doesn't play. And when, when he plays, Cleveland's 11 and 12 and they average 22 points a game. When he doesn't play, Cleveland is 8 and 5 and averages 26 points a game. And... This is not to say that Odell Beckham is not valuable. That's not what that means. What it means is precisely what you just said. Stop being obsessed with having to get Odell Beckham the ball. Make him a natural part of the offensive game flow. And now look, without uh, Jarvis Landry, and look, suppose that Kevin Stefanski says, okay, 65 offensive snaps in this game. Odell's playing 30. Because just remember, I, I think there is a hidden guy in this offense. He's not hidden. But Donovan Peoples-Jones is a guy who Baker Mayfield clearly feels an affinity to in this offense. You know, And he understands that even without Jarvis Landry, there are other options for him. They've got a great tight end group. Don't say, okay... Odell's playing 32 snaps in this game. He's getting 13 targets. Don't do that. Don't do that. And I think we both agree. Yep. The the play is very simple. It's what Tom Brady's doing in Tampa Bay. You drop back. You start to go through your reads. If the first guy's open, you throw it to him. If he's not, you go to the second guy. If he's open, you throw it to him. If he's not, you go to the third guy. If he's open, you throw it to him. You put the ball where it's supposed to go on every given play. And whoever it is that happens to be the one to catch it, good for him 
But that's how you keep your guys from getting upset. That's how you keep the offense from getting a skew. And that's the key. The Saints offense got a skew on Sunday against the Carolina Panthers. Let's talk about this one for a minute, Peter. Saints and Patriots. Yeah. Patriots getting ready for Tom Brady to come to town. They get Jameis Winston before that. Jameis Winston has faced Bill Belichick one other time and was not horrible. Jameis Winston was not good on Sunday against the Panthers. And I just assume Belichick's going to take that film of what the Panthers did to take away the run get Jameis Winston off his mark, get him to try to be Patrick Mahomes, and everyone, I think including Jameis Winston, realizes he's not Patrick Mahomes and and hope for a similar outcome. But I think this is the worst possible team that the Saints could be playing with Winston after getting completely shut down because here comes a coach who's going to be able to carbon copy exactly what happened and try to do it again. Hey, Mike, in, the, in an eight-day period, first against Tampa Bay, and then, or first against, sorry, against New Orleans and then against Tampa Bay. I think the most important player on the field for the Patriots is going to be Josh Uche. The speed rusher, last year's uh, second round pick out of Michigan. And the reason that I think Uche is going to be so important in this game plan is very, very simple. I want you to think about something. When you look at the New England Patriots and how they affect an offense Okay, they need speed around the corner to do that. And Josh Uche has shown sparks and signs. You have two basically, I, I don't want to call uh, Jameis Winston immobile. He, he can get around when he needs to. Tom Brady's immobile. And that is what that is why you need a guy who's going to come around the edge very fast. And in my opinion, you're absolutely right. You know, the Patriots are going to be uber-focused on stopping Alvin Kamara. Bill Belichick has a long history of saying, Marshall Falk, we're going to take you out of this game. And that's how they won their first Super Bowl. And you go over time, all the time that he said, Edgering James, you're not going to beat us. So those are the kind of things that I think are going through the Patriots' head right now. You're right. They will be focused on stopping Kamara. And then after that, they will be focused on really chasing Jameis Winston around. And that's why I think Josh Uche is a huge factor. And then when they get through that game, it's full and complete focus on the return of Tom Brady to New England, a topic that I have a feeling we will be addressing on more than one occasion next week. Chargers-Chiefs get together, both teams one and one. The loser is in the basement of the AFC West after three weeks of the season because the Raiders and Broncos are both 2-0, and potentially on their way each to 3-0. and Can the Chargers... And look, the injuries are already popping up again. Joey Bosa hasn't been practicing. Der- Derwin James is on the injury list. We, You know, the Chargers, if they could just keep all their guys healthy, would be unstoppable. Um, Chiefs look a little vulnerable. Chargers are are a good team, maybe not as good as I thought they were going to be after that loss to the Cowboys, but we'll see. Do you think they can they can steal a game from the Chiefs in Kansas City? Well, Mike, last year, uh, as you know, Justin Herbert started twice against the Kansas City Chiefs. He beat them once, and it's hard to call that a very meaningful game because the Chiefs weren't trying to win in Week 17, but. You know, I will just say this. Justin Herbert had 113.6 rating in those two games. He put up 59 points on Kansas City. Right now, I'm not saying that over the next 10 years, 
that Justin Herbert will be what Tom Brady was to Patrick Mahomes. But this is going to be a great, great rivalry over the next 10 to 15 years. And I'm not saying it's going to be Marino Elway or anything like that. I'm just saying that of all, if you look at all the divisions in football right now, right now, and you say, what is the best quarterback rivalry in any division? I mean, not that it's happened yet, you know, over a long period of time. Over the next 10 years, the best quarterback rivalry in football in any division is going to be Patrick Mahomes versus Justin Herbert. I agree with you completely. Absolutely. And I think I heard Chuck. I think I heard a quick little bark from Chuck. That Chuck is in the background, playing Mike. tricks on me. I heard Chuck. I like yeah. Chuck. Always good to have a little. A Chuck little, is uh, there. I think he's Chuck. waiting for me to take him out. Yeah, <laughs> got to hurry up um, with the show. I, I, but I agree with you completely. You know, the, the the best quarterback rivalries are the ones that play out in the postseason, and it's difficult to do that when you're in the same division. But when you're in the same division, difficult, you're guaranteed but not to get impossible. two of them. Every year, not impossible, not impossible. But, you know, one of the things that made Brady and Manning what it was, both teams were dominating their divisions during their tenures, which made it more likely in any given year slash every given year they'd get together in January. That's what made that rivalry. Russell Wilson and Kirk Cousins has not been much of a rivalry. The Seahawks have pretty much owned the Vikings in recent years. The Vikings, though, get to go home first Home game, first game with fans since the 2019 season. They're going to need that crowd to make a difference. The defense has been prone to lapses this year, giving up big plays. The Seahawks are prone to getting some big plays. Can the Vikings get away from their 0-2 start, finally getting that Seahawk off their back? You know what is so interesting about this particular rivalry? Mike, did you know that a Kirk Cousins-Russell Wilson college football game made the Seattle Seahawks choose Russell Wilson in the 2012 draft. Remember, let's go back to 2011. It, we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the Big Ten championship game at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. Michigan State with Kirk Cousins against Russell Wilson and his Wisconsin Badgers. Wilson, it's a huge shootout in the game. Wilson ends up winning the game at the end. John Schneider, the Seattle GM, is scouting the game that night and after the game goes to the hotel where the Wisconsin families and, and team are at and they're all celebrating. He meets the family of Russell Wilson and he loved him as a player and then he really got to love the roots that made Russell Wilson. And he gets to know people in the family and he comes back and he tells Pete Carroll, <clears throat> and this is a, a made-for-TV movie over-dramatization that I am basically inventing. But he basically went back to <laughs> Seattle after that game and said to Pete Carroll, hey, Pete, we got our quarterback. You know, I just saw him on Saturday night in Indianapolis. We got to take Russell Wilson. We got to find a way. And so obviously the next year, Jacksonville Jaguars at number 70 take a punter, Brian Anger. The Seattle Seahawks at number 75 take a quarterback, Russell Wilson. And the rest is history for both franchises. 
But, but Peter, Peter, you got to cut the Jaguars some slack here. After all, they had Blaine Gabbert at the time. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. You rest your case. <laughs> hey, he's the most underrated player in all of football, according to Bruce Arians. Uh, and he said it with a straight face. Yeah, yeah. Packers 49ers on Sunday night football. Green Bay had a couple of misadventures at Levi's Stadium in 2019 when the 49ers were firing on all cylinders. Last year, the Packers won there in large part because the 49ers were decimated. We talked about this on a video that we did for Yahoo Sports on Tuesday, and we're on the same page. Successfully punching your punching bag, that is the Detroit Lions, does not prove that everything is fixed with the Green Bay Packers. If they want us to forget about whatever it was that they offered up week one, they got to go to San Francisco and beat the 49ers. They do that, then we say, okay, it was a fluke. It was an aberration. It wasn't real week one. They go out there and they, they do what they did in 2019 twice, and that defense looks susceptible to giving up 37 again to the 49ers. They do that, and, and the, the fire is still raging at Lambeau Field. You know, Mike, the bottom line in all of this is the Green Bay Packers are going to need more than Aaron Rodgers and an offense that can put up 30 points a game. They're going to need more than that to win and to go far into the playoffs this year. Without Zadarius Smith, that is problematic. And it will be problematic against a good but not great offense you know, in San Francisco. But you're right. Two years ago, they got drubbed twice when they went to Levi's Stadium. This is their fourth game in 22 months at Levi's Stadium. It should almost feel like a second home to them. But I, I just, my biggest question coming into this is I think Aaron Rodgers is going to have to win a shootout. He can. He definitely can. But I, I think Aaron, Aaron Rodgers holds the fate of this game in his hands. I think he's got to score 34 points for the Packers to win. And if they lose, they will be. And I know how much you love this stat. This is why I'm mentioning it. They will be 1-6 in, in California and Florida and 29-4 and everywhere else in the universe under Matt LaFleur. You like that stat. You deep down you like you I don't really want to admit that and I use that it. you like that stat. Mike, I use it all the time because it's yeah, it's I'm sure so you do. perfect. Yeah. It means I'm sure. so I'm it sure you means did. so much. I scoured every word of football morning in America in search of it on Monday, and maybe I just hadn't had my coffee yet. Let's take a break. When we return, a closer look at the game of the afternoon, the Buccaneers and the Rams, Tom Brady's first game ever in Los Angeles. We'll discuss that next on PFT Live. 